Joyce Davis, and I am the president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg. I am delighted to be here with you in this collaborative event uh, with the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and you'll soon be hearing from my colleague, Patrick Ryan, who heads that organization. But we are here to uh, get an update on developments in the Middle East. We have with us two uh, representatives from the U.S. Department of State who will provide information about just how they're trying to connect to real Americans like us, but also will simply share insights into what has been going on, what are the developments in that region as they affect the United States. And to begin our conversation, our discussion tonight, I am pleased to say that we have with us Irina Karmanova, who is uh, a public affairs officer in the Bureau of Global Public Affairs at the US Department of State. And this is an office that tries to maintain ongoing dialogue with the American public about all kinds of issues, but especially the value of democracy and, and our, our, our relations with countries abroad. So with that, I will ask Irina Karmanova to join us uh, to she can unmute and, and turn on her, her camera and she will share with us some information about the State Department. Welcome, Arena. Thank you so much, Joyce. Uh, it's a real pleasure um, to meet you and to address uh, your World Affairs Council. Um, we've actually been able to do quite a, a, a number of events. Um, the silver lining with everyone going virtual is we're able to do a lot more. Um, and so we've engaged with over 10 World Affairs Councils uh, this year. And this is the final event for us for this year with World Affairs Councils. Um, and happy, happy to be here. Um, and we have a great speaker for everyone um, in a little bit. Um, but just a little bit about me. Um, I'm in the Office of Public Liaison at the Department of State's Bureau of Global Public Affairs. And our office, like you mentioned, Joyce, uh, connects with the American public. Um, through virtual events, in-person events, uh, conferences, um, all manner of different engagements. Um, and the goal being to start a dialogue between um, our State Department experts and the American audience um, on why diplomacy matters, um, you know, talk about our work um, overseas and at home, and um, encourage folks to, to connect with us and, and stay um, plugged into foreign affairs issues. Um, for some of your audience that might not know um, a lot about the State Department, I'm gonna play a short video. Afterwards, I'll turn it over to you. Um, so bear with me real quick. It's just an intro to the State Department. And again, thank you for having us. It's a wonderful and complex world with challenges and opportunities. That's why America's diplomats with the U.S. Department of State are on the job every day representing you. We are advancing America's foreign policy interests by uniting our allies, confronting our adversaries, and protecting our citizens. We advance democracy human rights, global health, and more. We grow markets that create American jobs. We are America's first federal agency, and we're in 190 countries and over 270 U.S. embassies and consulates serving you. 
We are the United States Department of State. Well, thank you again for watching that, um, and I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Irina, um, and thank you very much, uh, Joyce. Uh, on behalf of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, greetings from Nashville, where last time I looked out the window, we had no snow, as I think our northern neighbors have experienced a, a bit. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk uh, about a region that's not well known for much in the way of snow. First, let me thank uh, Joyce Davis and uh, the team at the World Affairs Council Harrisburg for leadership in bringing terrific global affairs awareness programs uh, to our communities. Given the topic tonight, let me share some personal observations about the Middle East. At the tender age of 17, I enlisted in the US Navy. The recruiter promised I could choose which coast I wanted to be stationed. Being from New York City, I chose the East Coast and they sent me to a ship in Bahrain, the Middle East Forest flagship. That's the Navy's uh, sense of humor uh, about the uh, East and West. Uh, this was early 1973 and it was a pretty peaceful part of the world at the time a sleepy perch to observe and learn about the region. Saudi Arabia and Iran were the two pillars of US security policy in the region. Our ship operated with Iranian warships under the banner of CENTO, the central region analog to NATO. And we made Liberty port calls in, uh, in Iranian uh, cities. We were the only US warship in a region that stretched from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of Asia. It was a quiet neighborhood other than that October when Egypt and Syria decided it was another good time to take on Israel and the Golan and Sinai. But over the 26 years that followed, the Middle East seemed to be on America's dance card and mine as well. As a junior officer on a guided missile cruiser, rushing to the region to be ready to respond to the hijacking of TWA-847 in Beirut and the murder of an American sailor. On a team of Office of Naval Intelligence assessment team uh, members, uh, looking at Iran's threat to Kuwaiti tankers sailing under American flags during the tanker war, and at the Pentagon on the Desert Shield and Desert Storm Campaign Intelligence Task Force to stop and reverse Iran's, uh, excuse me, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. As an intelligence officer on a carrier in the North Arabian Sea, ready to respond to Iranian belligerents, and as terrorism analysis chief at US Central Command, where, when terrorists killed 19 American service members and wounded 500 at Al Khobar in Saudi Arabia. That doesn't even get into the post-Arab Spring catastrophes that have hit places like Syria, the ISIS Caliphate in Iraq and Syria, the complexities of the Iranian nuclear program, increasingly aggressive Saudi foreign policies, the slow-moving Israel-Palestine situation, and much, much more. All that is to say that an American Foreign Service officer dealing with the Middle East is challenged by a fast-moving, complex, three-dimensional chess game political, economic, and national security challenges. It's more like playing diplomatic whack-a-mole. It's no longer sleepy time in the Gulf, it's a tough neighborhood. Ms. Amy Tachko is a, an expert in the Office of Regional and Multilateral Affairs Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs, U.S. Department of State. She joined the Foreign Service in 2002 after a brief stint in finance in New York. She has served in Karachi, Casablanca, twice in Madrid, Beirut, and in Washington in the bureaus of Near Eastern and African Affairs. She served as political counsel at the US Embassy Damascus in the run-up to the closure of the mission in 2012 
and was Minister Counselor for Political Affairs at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations under Ambassadors Samantha Power and Nikki Haley. She also served as Foreign Policy Advisor to the U.S. Fifth Fleet, the commander in uh, Manama, Bahrain. She is a graduate of Smith College and the Graduate Institute of International Studies in Geneva. She speaks French, Spanish, Italian, and Arabic. Not many Americans appreciate the sacrifices our diplomats make. They are truly the tip of the spear of American soft power. They go to places where the hard jobs are done representing United States interests. This is where I would have made a joke about her being posted in New York City. Kidding aside, let's be thankful for, thankful for the Amy Tachkos this country produces who get up every day and suit up the battle of American diplomacy. Thank you, Ms. Tachko. There are a few softball questions about the Middle East, but let me ask you to set the scene for us. Most people talk about the region as a monolithic concept, despite the many countries, religions, sects, tribes, external actors, ancient feuds, and many more factors. But on January 21st, President Joe Biden is going to need a quick appraisal of America's interests and challenges in the region. You're at the table, ready to set the scene. Ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. I, that was a, that was an incredible introduction, and it was wonderful to hear about your career. Um, and I'm actually delighted to uh, to hear that you your first naval posting was in was in Bahrain because, as you saw, I was uh, I was an advisor to the Fifth Fleet Commander in Bahrain just a couple of years ago. Um, it was it's remarkable because you talk about a fast moving region that is the Middle East, and it is a fast moving region. But somehow your description of it. We, we talked a lot about the tanker wars these days with what's going on in, with Iran in the, in the Gulf. Um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities. More things change, the more, they, the more things change, the more they remain the same to a certain degree. But um, I'm delighted to hear that we have a, the Navy connection in common. And I always said that my time in the Navy was some of the most fun that I've had as a US diplomat. So I'm delighted to be here as a part of this, as a part of this group. Um, again, my name is Amy Tashko. I am the director of the Office of Regional and Multilateral Affairs in the U.S. Department of State in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. Um, I've spent the vast majority of my career working in the Middle East or on the Middle East in a variety of places, including in New York City, which you'd be surprised is kind of a hardship post when you're working in the U.N. Security Council having to literally to, to have debate club with the, with the Russians and the Chinese on a daily basis. Um, it's, it's not easy. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm going to stand by that, um, regardless of what you say. Um, I, I worked um, a, a really long time on Middle East issues. Um, it's a part of the world that I care deeply apart about and, um, and, and have worked consistently across three administrations. And I think that there are uh, a lot of common themes that we pursue, that there are long-term interests that the United States has in this region um, that we can talk about. Um, I need to preface my remarks today by saying that um, I, I cannot speak at all. I, I work for the current administration and I cannot speak at all about the intentions of the incoming administration. But um, in response to your question, sir, about what I would tell the incoming administration, it's pretty much what, what I'm about to, what I plan to tell the group this evening about what our long-term strategic interests are in this e region, and then talk a bit about what we've been doing lately 
um, on those fronts and the progress we've made and the challenges that we still face. So this is what, what I'm about to talk to you about is pretty much that um, wh where we are now, um, what we've been doing in, in the past in the past several years, um, and how how we've sort of approached the region. Um, so the the United States has longstanding strategic interests in the Middle East. Um, we we would say that those include supporting the global economy through stable energy supplies and the secure lines of communication through the region's strategic sea lanes, which it, once again, the naval connection is very clear. Um, the US Navy does this in a really concrete fashion on the ground, but this is something that we as diplomats focus on a great deal in the region as well, um, preserving the, the lines of trade and, and commerce and ensuring that those aren't disrupted by malign actors. Um, preventing instability, violent conflict, and the proliferation of weapons from threatening allies in, and the rules-based international order, and ensuring terrorists are not able to cause harm to the United States and its citizens. That is of utmost importance to us and has been for my entire career, that's been at the top of our agenda, is making sure that the American people are protected from te terrorist threats. Um, I joined the Foreign Service immediately after 9-11, um, I was in New York City for 9-11. Um, I'm not gonna say that's why I joined the State Department, but it certainly made me desire to be a part of, of the process of making sure that we that something like that never happened again. Um, we have a long-term commitment to the security of our allies, the promotion of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, and achieving a lasting peace between Israel and its neighbors. And there'll be more about that later. Um, these interests are relatively stable, as I mentioned, shaping our policy priorities in the region. So the first thing I want to talk about today in terms of the priorities, if you're, you're talking about um, what we're doing now that might be briefed, um, that I would brief to you like I would brief to, to any an incoming administration. Again, I don't speak for them, but the, the, fir the first priority that we have right now is countering Iran's malign influence. Um, Currently, our top regional priority is countering Iran's malign influence, its nuclear program, its development of ballistic missiles, its support for terrorist groups, and its human rights abuses. The campaign of increasing sanctions on Iran has constrained Iran's activities and changed its calculus. The sanctions we've placed on Iran are not an end unto themselves, uh, but they are merely one of a broad range of tools that we deploy with a view to stopping the Moran, to getting the running regime to change its behavior. For example, the current situation in Iraq shows the real damage that Iranian-backed elements can do to a country's prosperity and long-term stability. Iran-backed militias routinely engage in widespread theft of Iraqi state resources, targeted killings, and sectarian violence. To combat this, we've worked closely with the Iraqi government, helping Iraq strengthen its sovereignty. Our efforts in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and across the Gulf are all designed to end Iran's malign influence and promote partnerships with more stable, secure governments able to advance their own interests and the interests of their people, not Iran's. We also have a big focus and we have for at least for, for as long as I've been in the department on ending regional conflicts as they arise. Across the region, our diplomacy supports UN-led international efforts to resolve ongoing conflicts in Syria, Libya, and Yemen. We seek political solutions that remove external proxy forces and allow the parties to establish legitimate 
accountable and effective governments that respect the rights of their own citizens. These conflicts radiate instability and it takes a unified approach working closely with the UN, regional and international partners to bring all sides to the negotiating table to find a durable political solution that can begin to repair the region. In Syria, our policy priorities remain the enduring defeat of ISIS, the removal of all Iranian commanded forces and a peaceful resolution to the conflict as set out in UN Security Council Resolution 2254. I was there in New York on the, for the passage of that resolution and I can tell you I didn't sleep for weeks in advance of it. So going back to my saying the New York assignment wasn't easy, um, uh, which lays out the basis for a political process on Syria. Our continued leadership of the global coalition to defeat ISIS and work with the capable local partners will ensure ISIS's lasting defeat. The global coalition bringing together 82 countries and international organizations working with local partners has secured the territorial defeat of ISIS, drastically reducing its ability to threaten our interests. And we lead military, diplomatic and messaging efforts to ensure that ISIS cannot reconstitute. In Libya, we're supporting the UN as it brings together broad in-person Libyan participation for the Libya Political Dialogue Forum, which aims to prepare for national elections and reconciliation, implement the nationwide Libyan ceasefire agreement that came about just recently and that everybody was really very enthusiastic about, and support the permanent reopening of the oil sector. Uh, we also continue to push foreign actors intervening in the conflict, including Turkey, Russia, and the UAE, and others to de-escalate, withdraw their equipment and mercenaries, and actively support the UN political process. In Yemen, we support the diplomacy of UN Special Envoy Martin Griffiths as he works to bring the Republic of Yemen government and the Houthis together to establish a lasting peace. The Houthis, armed by Iran, continue to threaten regional stability, security and stability through attacks against civilian infrastructure in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. We're deeply concerned about the humanitarian situation in Yemen as well, and we work every day to get much needed assistance to the Yemeni people. Houthi obstructionism and refusal to uphold international principles have forced us to curtail some of our aid to areas under Houthi control, though we have continued life-saving and critical assistance. One of our, our biggest priorities in this administration has been promoting peace, prosperity, and stability through regional integration. And regional integration, a big part of that is uh, expanding Israel's relationships with its neighbors. The Abraham Accords and the decisions by the governments of the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan, and now Morocco to agree to normalize relations with Israel show how we can promote peace, prosperity, and stability through regional integration. The Abraham Accords present a historic opportunity. After decades of division and conflict, normalization of relations and peaceful diplomacy will promote greater peace and security in the region and widen opportunities for expanded economic growth and, pro and productivity. Um, we can't talk about, about regional integration, however, with discuss without discussing the regional rift among the Gulf states, which has expanded into a wider rivalry between Turkey and Qatar against the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. The rift undermines our ability to fight terrorism and construct a unified coalition to blunt Iranian influence. We are stronger when we stand together. And we have consistently pressed our partners to end the Gulf Rift. We are hopeful that they will resolve their differences and work with us to address our shared concerns. 
Another priority that we have is promoting stability by assisting our partners in building accountable institutions and, and inclusive economic growth. A decade past the Arab Spring, many regional governments still have not found ways to address the structural problems that generate, that generate, generated and still generate waves of unrest. Our assistance to partners in the region emphasizes building accountable institutions while supporting civil society to lay the groundwork for stable governments that can collaborate with the United States to maintain regional peace and stability. In Lebanon, the world is witnessing an historic moment. For over a year, the Lebanese people have been calling on their leadership to end decades of mismanagement and corruption and implement reforms that will ensure good governance, accountability, and economic opportunity. The United States supports these demands and has stood by the Lebanese people during these trying times. We can now see yet another attempt to form a Lebanese government. These tend to be very, very long processes, but it is clear that whoever leads Lebanon cannot proceed with business as usual. They must undertake meaningful, sustained reforms that are able to restore international confidence in Lebanon and unleash the Lebanese people's enormous potential. We also remain determined to push back on the terrorist group Hezbollah, which puts its own interests and those of Tehran ahead of the interests of the Lebanese people. We also spend a good amount of our time trying to out there really demonstrating US leadership and countering our global competitors. Our presence and our relationships with our partners serve as a bulwark against the efforts of Russia and China to extend their influence in the internet into the Middle East, excuse me. Russia has used intervention in Syria and Libya to show that it is an ally of repressive regimes and as a showcase of arms to sell. China is now the region's top customer for oil and gas exports. China's willingness to sell arms and supply investment without regard for transparency, accountability, or human rights makes it a tempting partner for autocratic governments seeking to emulate China, China's model of social control, as well as to economically vulnerable countries. We engage partners region-wide on a daily basis on our concerns about China and the dangers of employing Chinese technology. We also press leading regional states to hold China accountable for abusive treatment of its Muslim minority populations. Over the long term, China's increasing presence in the region challenges our ability to safeguard our interests. By countering Iran's malign influence, maintaining strong ties with our partners, supporting efforts to end regional conflicts, and promoting regional integration and good governance, we are able to advance our long-term interests in the region with a view to securing a stable, prosperous Middle East. So that is maybe not exactly what I would tell a new administration coming in, but that's that's along the lines of, of these sort of longstanding interests um, that that we have and um, and what we've been doing lately in order to address those and what our strategies have been. Um, again, I, I can only speak for the current administration. I can't speak for future administrations at this point, but I am looking forward to hearing from the other panel members today, um, their thoughts on those questions. And, um, and I thank you very much for your time. Well, I thank you very much, Amy. That was quite a thorough overview of so many aspects of, of the Middle East. That, so I'm in awe of how you're able to do it all in this short of time and really make <laughs> it clear and succinct for us. But we, we do have uh, at least two of our board members who I've uh, kind of twisted their arms to ask them to come on and to offer us some of their comments and perhaps to have a little bit of, ex of an exchange. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Chris Dolan, who is um, a professor at 
Lebanon Valley College near us. And he is really an international affairs specialist as, as well, and someone who I know has a deep interest in the Middle East. And also Dr. Mehdi Nourbash, uh, who is um, a, a professor in international relations at Harrisburg University, which is making a name for itself uh, as a cutting edge university during these times. So Dr. Nourbash and Dr. Uh, Nolan, you can unmute and uh, do your uh, videos. There you go. All right, I see Dr. Dolan is there. So uh, Chris, why don't you start? And as you were listening to um, Amy kind of uh, relay this overview, what were the things that struck you most? Or what were those, those uh, things mm. that you might say might be the, the biggest challenges for the US going forward? Yeah, I um, and thank you, Amy, for, for your comments. I'm, I'm really happy to be here uh, this evening. Um, and, and wait, before you get started, let me also let the people who are our participants know you can write in questions in the Q&A and I will be monitoring those so that we can discuss those later. <clears throat> okay. Um, I, I, was recent, I recently returned from Kosovo where I was on a US uh, Fulbright scholarship. And one of the things that I um, uh, really took away from that experience, just having been in the Western Balkans and um, having uh, been in uh, Turkey for a little bit, was just the sheer amount of um, Chinese investment pro uh, projects that had um, really just kind of overlaid the region, um, the Western Balkans in particular. The, the one I was focusing my research on was the 16 plus one initiative, I think was later expanded into, this, into the 17 plus one initiative. And so I'm, I'm wondering to what extent, and, and you had covered uh, this in, in your comments, is the, um, the expansion of China's Belt and Road uh, strategy. It, it, it seems like, I mean, it, it's a massive initiative and it seems like it's realigning partnerships in the region and the US is, seems to be uh, responding to that as best as it can. So I'm, I'm just wondering uh, to what extent do you think U.S. foreign policy to the Middle East, especially the Persian Gulf region, and, and you did mention um, rising uh, uh, rising Chinese imports of oil and natural gas. I think I think China is now the world's leading importer of oil. I, I think, um, and, and it surpassed the United States. I think several years ago, and it's increasing every year. There's a new um, well. There's the military installation in Djibouti. So I'm just wondering to what extent do you think that U.S. Policy in, especially in the Persian Gulf, and, and with the various realignments that have taken place and the diplomatic recognitions, to what extent is it going to be shaped by, I guess, the structure of the region really being um, uh, shaped by rising Chinese influence, in particular investment in the region? Um, the the reason that I mentioned this is one of our one of our sort of top five, and and honestly, you know, something that we we across the administration are bringing up on a daily basis is because we do recognize this as a, a serious threat, and I would say, and a serious challenge. Um, you know, we we have we have constant conversations with our partners across the region, um, with all of the countries in in the Middle East, and basically, our version of the Middle East is is from all across North Africa, from Morocco all the way across. Um, up to Iran and then down to Yemen. 
um, so across the Gulf. Um, I can't think of a single country where we haven't had these conversations. Um, like I said before, the, the Chinese have, can come up with, with different sort of pitches for different types of governments and, and that sort of thing. So we, we go in and we talk about the real risks. The Chinese come in and they, they put together what looks like a really good package, but it has all kinds of strings attached. Um, and, and they need to be really, really cautious about this. And I think that this is something that we as a government are gonna be looking at for, for a very long time to come. But countries in, is it, I think my, my bio mentioned that I served in Africa before, you know, you, you, see, you see countries that have a less sophisticated understanding of what's going on. We try to engage our partners, particularly in the Gulf, because they're sophisticated partners. And just let them know, make sure that, you, that you're, you're actually looking at, at what the threats are here. Um, and, uh, and, and you're, you understand that, that these deals with the Chinese are not the, you know, the pretty win-win things. That's, that's one of the, one of the catchphrases of the Belt and Road Initiative, the win-win solutions. Um, th these are not win-win solutions. These are win for China and, you know, we'll see what happens to you for a while, but on the back end, um, the, the Chinese are not very they're not they're not very understanding they the the deals tend to be structured in such a way that, that it's not not what you think um and then the, the the real threats of using chinese technology i think that that's something that that we are mm. talking to partners about on a daily basis um that is a that is something we consider to be a real top threat we we need countries to realize that that they're, they're more more than strings attached there's there's all kinds of you don't know what the Chinese are going to do with, you know, if, if they are the backbone of your, of your mm -hmm. 5G infrastructure. Yeah, many of the sites I, I visited in Istanbul and then in the Western Balkans had these big belt and road kind of like markers. And um, it, it was interesting, uh, the amount of inroad that Huawei has made. Uh, and that and, and that opens up a whole panoply of national security concerns from an American perspective, and and I think that it, it it's beyond. I think the uh, and what I liked about what you said in your presentation is it's not just hard power focused. It's not just military and energy. It's also um, it seems like there's a soft power kind of uh, exchange going on, and I think that's where the United States has its most significant advantage, is that uh, in the promotion of democracy human rights and the rule of law. And I think that's what helped us defeat the Soviet Union um, in the Cold War. And I think that, that 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 is to America's advantage in the region. So I hope that as we move forward in the Middle East, that, that we promote the attractiveness of the American brand, the cultural brand and the and obviously our, our, our economic model. And, and I think that that is a win for the United States. And so I'm, I'm hoping as we move forward and hopefully with more investments in diplomacy because most of international relations, at least I think, this is what I teach my students, is diplomacy. And so, and, and it's that nuance and, and the, the attractiveness and the allure of the American model, I think is something we need to get out there even more. Very good. Let's bring uh, Dr. Nurbash in because I know he's he's definitely got some questions on him. So, Dr. Nurbash, yes, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. comments. Oh, that sounds Thank intimidating. You. Thank you. <laughs> no, 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 Amy. Thank you very much. I'm I'm coming from uh, that part of the world, and I'm very much involved, more than uh, and a scholar over here, into the political activities and human rights, and you know those issues. 
then overall, you know, this is my my debate and discussion that after after the Cold War, uh, we were hoping that America understand the value of democracy and human rights in foreign policy. And unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, and uh, and in, the, in the Middle East, if you go back at the moment, on the top of everything else, there are two issues uh, uh, so far from you know, what I know. One, of course, is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That that breeds, you know, radicalism. That breeds, you know, conflict also. And this, the second one is, of course, authoritarian regimes. Uh, and I want to tell you, and Joyce knows, everybody knows. Uh, I, I, I cannot go back to my country. My country is Iran because I'm in the forefront of, you know, the battle. But overall, when, when we go back to this administration, this administration did two things in the Middle East that was not overall you know conducive to um, to, to bringing you know the parties together or you know promoting uh, the national interests of the united states in this sense I, I, I totally agree with chris that american national interest can be defined more than anything else in promoting democratic values and human rights if you do that then you have the support of the streets in the Middle East. But that has not been you know, the case. Uh, Amy, you talked about the Abraham Accord, and I'm, I'm going through the polls in the Middle East. That is, in the streets of the Middle East, that is the most unpopular type of accord between the police, I'm sorry, between the Arab countries and you know, Israel at the moment. And overall, uh, when we go back to Iran, my country, uh, two things that you know uh, totally surprised you know a lot of people in Iran. One, of course, was the withdrawal from GCPOA in in 2018. The moderates in Iran they were thinking that they are done with GCPOA and now they can concentrate. I'm talking about the forces for democracy. Now they can concentrate on the government and put you know, pressure on the government for the next steps. Because as all of you know, and as you know, Amy, uh, Obama administration, when they negotiated GCPOA, that was the first step. Uh, that was not the last step. And unfortunately, that withdrawing from the you know, JCPOA weakened the moderate forces in Iran, it strengthened the radical forces in Iran. And we are over here at the moment. We are unfortunately over here. You come to Saudi Arabia and this administration, and this is overall you know, the question of a lot of democratic forces in the Middle East, not only in Iran, in a lot of the other countries. How a government can be that brutal and how I, I, the Iranian government is brutal, there is no question about it. I, I don't have any question over there too. I want you to understand me, Dino, that I, I am in opposition to the human rights of that in record of you know, that government. But how the United States with those values can, can really not question what you know what that brutal man did to a journalist. That is the you know to the surprise of a lot of people in the Middle East. I just wanted to you know and you 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 very rightly mentioned you know the human humanitarian 
of course, concern about, uh, 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 what was that, Yemen. And very simple, very, very simple. That, that is you know, something that a lot of people you know, see in the Middle East. And overall, you know, since you are there, and uh, I, I know you are absolutely, you are trying your best. I don't have you know, any doubt you know, about that. This region is thirsty for democracy. I don't know if you see it or not. A couple of years ago, that was 2017, a Pew organization ran a poll. And there are a couple of other polls you know, after that. And the recent one, of course, came out, uh, Arab Youth Survey, that is a new West one 2020. And if you go back you know, to that and look at even in Saudi Arabia, even in Saudi Arabia, people free prefer democracy to anything else. Then overall, you know, this is my argument and that has been my argument during my whole life that America should use you know, this tool and, and, and really get the support of the streets in that you know, part of the world. And the interests of the United States will be served if the United States stays with those values in that part of the world. Because a bunch of, you know, I'm sorry, thugs are running you know, most of you know, those countries. And that is overall you know, the way to go. I'm sorry, I, I talked you know, too much. But... Well, that's all right, Dr. Now, now let's, 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 let's let Amy comment on that. And then we want to bring up uh, Patrick Ryan in and take some of the questions that are coming in from our, our, our audience. But Amy, did you want to comment on, on Dr. Nurbash's statement? Um, I, I would say um, that... The, um, I think she agrees with me. I think she agrees with me. Why did you ask that? Let's let her talk. Thank you for your comments and for, for your, your vast yes. experience, obviously. Yes, um, I, but I can tell you, and this is how I started off my talk, and I, and I truly believe this, um, that, the, that democracy and human rights are not only a core part of our country and our values, but they are something that we have consistently represented across my almost 20 years um, as a U.S. diplomat, um, including including yesterday, including mm -hmm. for all of the years that I've that I've been working in this administration, the last administration, the one before that. Um, that that is something that I have heard. You know, when I, I I actually went, as I said, I had the the last presidential transition, and this is not what I'm here to talk about. I worked for. Ambassador Samantha Power in the Obama administration and then worked for Ambassador Nikki Haley in, the, in this administration. The, the, one of the very first things that we did in April of 2000, in 2017 was during the US presidency of the UN Security Council, we had a UN Security Council session on human rights. And that, is, that had not happened. That had not happened before. We had to like, like do some crazy stuff to get the Russians and the Chinese to agree to letting us do it. But th this has been something that every day of my diplomatic career has been a core part of what we do. Um, and I think that it, that it will continue to be a core part of what we do. So I, um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the dynamics of the Middle East are extremely complicated, as you know, um, the, government, the, the governments and the, the government in the streets you know, the, we, we all saw that during the Arab Spring, Arab Awakening, Arab whatever you want to call that anymore. Um, but uh, throughout all of that, there has never been a moment in my time as a U.S. diplomat where we have not strongly represented democracy and human rights as values that we represent and, and try to, to take that to the people of the country that, where we operate. 
Joyce, can, 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 I, can, can I add something? Joyce, can oh, I add something to what? Ready, we really do have to, I mean, okay. I have to get okay. some of well, I'm going to come back to you, but one of the things that I think is very clear, and I think we all can agree on, is that sometimes uh, the average American doesn't really know what these hardworking diplomats are actually doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I just, I argue that there needs to be better communications of the world of our diplomats and actually what they're doing on the ground, which is why opportunities like this for them to speak to our actual Americans are so valuable. So I wanna compliment you for understanding that and being here. But let me bring Patrick Ryan in. Uh, Patrick, I believe who is our, our co-host with this, I wanna bring him in from Tennessee. Patrick, I know you have a question you want to raise or comment? Well, there's uh, a few in the queue, but uh, I've got one on, on uh, my mind. You talked about the, uh, the China influence in the region. And this year, there was a, an agreement between Iran and China. And that's going to uh, possibly impact uh, Chinese influence further in the Gulf. Uh, there's the opportunity for additional weapon sales. And we're already concerned about uh, missile proliferation and, and such. Uh, but also uh, uh, possible Chinese presence, military presence in Iran in exchange for uh, economic uh, considerations, oil exports, and so forth. And this, uh, this dovetails with uh, one of the questions in the queue about uh, China and its influence in the region. Maybe you could uh, comment on uh, what uh, the State Department might be uh, looking at in terms of policy development. Is there an overarching strategy of how to deal with uh, China uh, in this region specifically, I know it's a global challenge, but uh, clearly the, the Middle East has got its hands full with uh, Chinese influence, uh, not just the, the economic, but also the national security aspect. Um, absolutely, we do. Um, we, we, we are, th this is something that we as a State Department have taken on in a really serious way. And I think as the entire United States government, um, if you went back to your Navy colleagues, like I said, I was just a couple of years ago um, hanging out with the, with the Navy. These are, this is something that we're looking at in every context and certainly in the context of the Middle East. Um, you, you mentioned the deals with Iran. The thing with China is that, and this is one of the things that we talk about when, as, as I noted in response to Mr. Dolan's remarks, um, I, we have daily conversations with our, with our close partners saying, look, China's trying to play it both ways. You know, they're, they're, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you are part of, a, of our working with us to counter Iranian malign influence, what, what are the Chinese, what are the Chinese doing over there? And, and, and shouldn't you be taking that into account when you're talking to them and making sure that you're expressing your your opposition to these sorts of things. These are real threats. This is something we, we do have a strategy. We do have people out in the field call, following this on a day-to-day -day basis. This is definitely something, as I mentioned before, that I don't think that I think that we are, is, is going to be a consistent theme um, regardless. I mean, again, I am not speaking for future administrations. I, I, I must say that, say that multiple times, but I can say sure. certainly in this administration, that this is a big priority. You've heard Secretary Pompeo talk about it repeatedly. I think you've heard most US government officials, the president has certainly mentioned it on a whole variety of occasions. And, and in particular in this region, um, a lot of my colleagues in the State Department have, have traveled to the region to talk about, about the risks of, of, of Chinese technology, as I mentioned before. And, um, and they, you know, they kind of try to play the good cop um, but how can you play the good cop with everybody? 
it's it's a good point that that would be my you know maybe that's more provocative than my talking points but you know that's this is definitely something that we follow and that we talk about a lot yeah let me do this i'm going to turn it over to uh, patrick so that he can read some of the questions that have been coming in and then there are a lot of them he's going to have to be selective but i want to give an opportunity for Said Onal, who is uh, one of our board members, if he has a question, because I he's, I know he's interested in Turkish issues, so I wanted to give him that opportunity. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you, Amy. That was a great presentation. Uh, my question, actually, uh, of course, um, as a Turkish-born American citizen, my heart, half of it at least, is in Turkey, and a lot of human rights abuses have been happening. Unfortunately, uh, Trump administration uh, has been uh, a blind eye to this whole issue, mostly, which I wasn't happy with. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are reasons for it. It's over political, you know, uh, uh, strategic uh, power of Turkey, whatnot. Um, if you could touch that a little bit about what happened in Turkey last four years, the, a big U-turn from democracy and really didn't matter in foreign policy of United States. It was, you know, like business as usual, which wasn't, wasn't the promise of United States to the world. You know, we will stand with democracy, human rights. Well, it didn't happen. That's one question. And my other question is, you know, uh, the Biden administration has been saying things about the change in foreign policy. What do you think about those changes? And do you agree with them? I mean, how this is gonna make uh, us better or worse? Uh, thank you, Amy. Um, okay, so I have to give you a couple of caveats. The first one is that I am a representative of the US Department of State on December 17th, 2020. And therefore I can only speak for the, the US Department of State that, that I work for right now. And I can't, I can't give you my personal opinion on, on anything uh, that the, the new administration might have, have said as the president-elect might have said or, or any comment on the new administration. Um, so I'm sorry for that. The, the second caveat I must give you is that officially within the US Department of State, and this is a very bureaucratic uh, answer and I'm, and I'm gonna be very, very sorry to you, is that Turkey is not technically in the Middle East according to us. So there, my European colleagues cover Turkey that said, um, we, the, the Turkey plays a very, you know, a very oversized role um, in the region, and we certainly work with our colleagues quite fre frequently on a whole variety of issues having to do with Turkey. Um, I, I, that said, I, you know, I, I, I can't really comment on, I, I will go back to what I said on the human rights issue writ large. Um, you know, our, our ambassador in Ankara is an extremely seasoned U.S. diplomat. The, there are a lot of conversations that we, that we have on a day-to-day -day -day basis on a whole variety of issues with Turkey because Turkey, our interests with Turkey intersect in every possible direction. And I can say that without, I think, violating any rules. I'm not gonna say any, I'm not, I'm not gonna speak writ large about the internal situation in Turkey because I can't, I'm absolutely not authorized to talk about that. But I can talk about, generally speaking, our commitment to human rights and the fact that we do we do actually have those conversations um, all over the world when we see violations of human rights, and we have we have continued to have those along the way, and we are having very very frank conversations with the Turks on a whole variety of issues having to do with the Middle East and other and other issues around the region. So I, this is probably the the least 
um, the, the least responsive I've been to anybody's question and I apologize for that. Um, and I can't, but I, I am not in any way able to speak to, if my colleagues on the turkey desk found out that I was going around talking about turkey, they would kill me. So I, as far as you're concerned and all of your Facebook audience, and which means the whole world, I didn't say anything about turkey tonight. Got it, got it. We, we are <laughs> not in your realm of responsibility. Got it. I mean, I, but let me tell you, I, after I left Syria, I spent, I spent a good chunk of time in Istanbul covering Syria issues there. Um, and I have worked very, very closely with Turkish colleagues uh, in New York and in a whole play, variety of places around the world. Um, I follow issues in Turkey very closely. It's a place that I care very much about. So it, it pains me, sir, not to be able to talk to you, just sit down and talk to you. But um, under the circumstances, I, unfortunately, I've, um, all, I can, all I can speak to is the, the human rights issue writ large, which I will, again, defend to my death that that we do on a on a day to day to day basis have a lot of conversations about human rights issues with all of our partners around the world. Very good, Patrick. You got some questions from our audience. I do, but I just like to follow up on the uh, being posted in in Bahrain, Amy. I'm I'm certain that uh, Bahrain uh, now looks nothing like it did in 1973. So I'm glad you got to uh, be there. At, when it was, uh, sure, and, and I have to tell you, the place is expanded by like 30% because it's an island that's this big. And what they keep doing is just filling in the water. <laughs> so it's actually, I think, 30% larger maybe than when you were last there. It's a little bit strange. Well, I've been back since when I was at CENTCOM, but in 73, it was uh, really a backwater. Uh, let, let me uh, <laughs> ask a question uh, that Skip Cornett has put in our queue, and it, uh, it deals with Israel-Palestine. And I'm certain that uh, in the last uh, 50, 60 years, there have been people asking the same question, and uh, the State Department, if they had the, uh, the answer, would have uh, resolved the problem. But uh, Skip is concerned about the Israel-Palestine situation and uh, how despite the uh, Abraham agreements, uh, the situation with the Palestinians might be advanced so that Israel is secure, but the Palestinians uh, do have uh, uh, some reconciliation through a two-state solution. Again, uh, not an easy answer, but maybe your, your ideas on what's happening there. Um, I can say that that this administration has consistently said that we would like the, the Palestinians to come to the negotiating table. Um, the, the, um, as of right now, their refusal to engage and there, there's not any engagement is, is really just delaying what could be a, a process to, to fulfill the, the potential of, of the people and, and come to an agreement. And that is the that is, there has not been a moment when the Palestinian issue has not been on the agenda. What would you uh, tell people is the, uh, the most difficult diplomatic issue in the region? Oh, that's me. Um, that's, that's me trying to expound and say something that the, the what, what, I, what uh, I think is the most. But the Bureau. Uh, um, the, the biggest challenge for the Bureau consistently is, um, is the Iranian question and encountering Iranian influence, um, and they're in very many places. Um, so I would put it the, the Iran question and then the China question that everybody keeps raising, which is something that really is, is a question that goes across the entire, every country 
in the region. Um, there, there is, I can't think of a single country in the region where something having to do with China has, hasn't arisen where we, it's, it's something that we engage on. But um, consistently our top priority is, is countering Iranian malign influence. Trooper thralls from places like Iraq. There was a, a presidential tweet a few weeks ago that we were gonna bring down to zero the presence in, in places like Iraq. Uh, where do we stand in the region on the cutting down the footprint? Um, I can't speak to anything about what the Department of Defense is doing. Um, I think that there's a there's a that they don't do anything as you know from having been in the Navy. They don't do anything without a plan. So um, the, I can guarantee you that there's a whole there, there's a whole system over there that's planning the way that, that all of this will be executed. But I can tell you that our commitment to these countries and to the region is consistent. We have diplomatic presences in all of these places and we continue to have military engagement of some sort in all of these places. And that is that that will be the case. We, this is not a US withdrawal of, of, our, of our commitment to the region. One question, uh, probably of parochial interest. We have in Nashville, the largest uh, community of Kurdish people outside of uh, the Middle East. And uh, I'd, I'd like to ask on their behalf uh, what the uh, U.S. government's position is. There was a vote in Kurdistan for independence a couple of years ago, and the U.S. government uh, told them quietly it probably wasn't a good time to be doing that. Where, where do we stand on the, our policy regarding Kurdish independence? Um, the, our policy is, is the, uh, the integrity of the nation of Iraq. Good answer. And, and with regard to Iraq, what, what do we see uh, evolving there in terms of the Iranian militias and Iranian influence and uh, U.S. presence? Uh, we've, we had the killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani earlier this year and then the uh, Iranian response, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to have slowed down any. Um, the, we are in constant communication with the Iraqis on, on these questions. Um, and as I said, you know, in terms of the, the part about the withdrawal is just sort of the, the question from before, we, we have a continued commitment to, uh, to Iraq and to our engagement with the Iraqi, with the Iraqi government and the Iraqi people. Um, so that's, that's not in question. Um, and, um, and I think I mentioned in my remarks specifically, Iraq as an example of Iranian malign influence. Um, the, the, Shia, the, the various militia groups there, um, they bring violence, they bring instability. Um, the, the, this, is, this is not a question of protection. This is a question of, of you know, the, of, of the, the epitome of malign influence, the epitome of, of, of sort of spreading instability. So this is why we continue our engagement with the Iraqi government to, to um, you know, have, have uh, control of the situation and, and try to, to keep things as calm as possible. But that's, that's an ongoing situation and we're, we're constantly engaging on it. Like I said, top priority, um, I would say that we have is, is countering the Iranian malign influence and, and a lot of that has been in Iraq. Joyce, one more if I might. Um, right, Amy, can you, can you talk about uh, Lebanon? The uh, situation there was in pretty uh, bad shape, the economy and the, the politics. And then there was the explosion at the port, which uh, caused yeah. billions of dollars of damage. Uh, what, what's the government, U.S. government position on uh, helping Lebanon out of its situation 
Uh, Hezbollah is part of the government. They're active throughout the country. Uh, mm -hmm. They're a terrorist group as, as far as the State Department is concerned. But uh, what, what are we doing to help the Lebanese people? Um, I don't, I don't have, I can, I can actually get back to you with the actual things that we're doing. We have a number of assistance programs that, that are, have come directly in response to the explosion in addition to, um, into addition to the programming that we do on a regular basis with the, with the Lebanese government. But I spoke to this a little bit in my remarks. Lebanon is another place with a special place in my heart. I, I spent two years there. It was one of my very favorite tours. I try not to say I have a favorite tour, but um, that's that's a place that sticks with you. You can't help it. Um, it's not Karachi? But, um, I, I love Karachi. Oh, we can talk about <laughs> Karachi too if you want. Um, but um, the, the, the what what is striking to me at this point is you know we we really are calling for everybody in Lebanon to undertake the necessary reforms um, that that for a long time the Lebanese people are are a brilliant people with tons of potential and I was I followed economic affairs when I was there and you know the whole country has for a long time sort of been the constantly teetering but everybody talks about the amazing Lebanese resilience. Um, what our position now is and what our constant conversations with the Lebanese government are is are that we 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 need to undertake the reforms to this place so that the government actually functions for the people and so that the the economic institutions are functioning in, in a way that is that is sustainable for the long-term success of the country. So those are our ongoing conversations that we have all the time. Um, but we are Lebanon is always a place that, that, that we're highly engaged in. For this little teeny tiny country on the Eastern Mediterranean, um, there's always lots of attention. And I can assure you that there's, there's still lots and lots of attention um, to the situation there. It's something that we're following very closely. Amy, thanks for being with us uh, tonight. Joyce, thanks for letting me butt in. Absolutely. No, we're happy to have you as collaborators. But let me turn back to Chris and to Mehdi to ask if they have any final, many, you had a final thought you wanted to try to make here and uh, Chris as well, so that they can have some concluding remarks and, you know, um, then we'll let Amy close us out. <laughs> you want me to go first? Yes, please, Dr. I, I don't know, do you know, Amy, I have a very close contact and I'm involved in Iraq. Uh, since 2018, the political map of Iraq has been changed. Iraq is a different country. The influence of, of Iran diminished uh, very rapidly in that you know, country with one election. And as you know now, the prime minister of Iraq, Mustafa al-Kadhimi, is very much in the forefront of opening up you know, the country to everybody. And on the other side, of course, you have seen, and this is overall you know, something that everybody should know, that they were, they were part of the Shiite in Iraq in the parliament that they asked the United States to, to exist, exit you know, that country. But that is not the majority, that is not Sistani. And Iraq, what I want to say, Iraq has changed. And this is overall you know, my argument, that when you push for democracy, when you stabilize democratic institutions, then no matter you know how traditional the country is, how uh, they, they know how to negotiate with each other, 
and Iraq since 2018 has changed drastically and Iran does not have the influence that it had, you know, before. Absolutely not. There was one day, Amy, you know it better than me, that the Iranians, they could influence who will be elected as a, as a, as a prime minister of that country. That is not the case anymore. That is not the case. And if you are given a chance to, to establish democratic institution, strengthen it, that is what you see. I'm sorry, Joyce. That's all right, thank you. Uh, Chris, you wanna add something, Dr. Dolan? Yeah, just just quickly, um, I, I, we, we didn't cover Saudi Arabia that much and, and I'm, I'm just wondering- Maybe did. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I, and I don't wanna get into the domestic politics and um, of, 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 of Saudi Arabia, but I'm, I'm wondering to what extent that you think that the US um, and the US relationship with Saudi Arabia will, uh, okay, I'm just gonna be simple. To what extent is the relationship with Saudi Arabia significant to our broader interests in the region? Is, is it still uh, one, one of the most important relationships in, in the region, especially the Persian Gulf? Or do you see that kind of evolving in a different kind of strategic direction a little bit, given the talk about the JCPOA and rising Chinese influence, is, is the United States' relationship with Saudi Arabia still consequential? Moving well, forward. I will let you answer that and offer any other final thoughts you may want for us with this all-encompassing conversation. Um, Thanks. I mean, you're lucky you got me because I cover regional affairs, so I can vaguely talk about everything, but I'm afraid on some of the issues, I, I didn't do as a good job as others. But mm -hmm. thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I, I do have to say on the relationship, the relationship with, with Saudi Arabia is a hugely important one. Um, there, there's almost no relationship in the region that I, coming from where I, you know, where I, where I do and the work that I do every day is not important. The relationship with Saudi Arabia with all of our Gulf partners is extremely important. And our, our relationship with the GCC is important, which is why we would like to see the rift um, fixed. Um, but the, that, that continues to be an extremely important relationship and something that we, that we are very, very much invested in. Um, uh, in terms of, of remarks, I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for having me and for being such an incredibly engaging and, um, and, and well-informed uh, uh, group of people to have a conversation with. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I think you know, the, that in many ways you probably showed me up in a little, uh, a little bit. There's a, there's a whole lot that, a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge um, in this group. And, and I really appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to you. So um, it's really been a pleasure and thank you. Well, Amy Tachko, we want to thank you. Look, we understand the difficult but so valuable work you're doing as an American diplomat during difficult times for the whole world in the middle of a pandemic and all the political upheaval that we know our country and other countries are facing. You guys continue to work and you continue to work on our behalf. So for that, we want to the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg, and I know the Tennessee World Affairs Council, wants to thank you for your service. So with that- Thank you so much. You are welcome. With that, I also want to thank uh, Dr. Dolan, Dr. Mehdi Norbash, uh, of course, my friend Patrick for joining us, and we hope to do more joint programs in the future. Saeed Onal and the other board members who have signed on, and those who are joining us on Facebook Live. So with that, 
we will let you go back to your good work and, and making peace around the world. Goodbye. <laughs> good night. Bye-bye. Good night, Jamie. Thank you. Bye.